This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hello, everybody. It's great to have you here. And I must say, again, like I've said in the past, that I am very proud of my adopted state, Texas. Not just for what they did this week, but for many reasons. But let's focus on what they did this week. Attorney General Ken Paxton now has filed this very important lawsuit trying to be heard at the Supreme Court on this issue of ballot fraud. As we know, there have been lots of, shall we say, irregularities in some of these ballots and some of the signatures and some of the, oh, let's just say some of the weird things going on with hidden cameras and suitcases under tables and things of that sort. Lots and lots of problems with this election. And we all knew going into the election, at least I think most thinking people understood, that the mail-in ballot issue that was being exploited during the pandemic was going to be a nightmare. The degree to which it has become a nightmare, I think, has been underestimated by many of us. So here comes Texas. The United States Supreme Court has now ordered Pennsylvania Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia to reply to this lawsuit. What is it all about? This is the statement from Ken Paxton when asked on Fox News this week, why is this an an important case really for Texas to get involved in? This is cut one. It's really important to my state that my voters be represented. And if other states don't follow the Constitution, and if their state legislature isn't responsible for overseeing their elections and we have other people who are not under the constitution under the constitution supposed to be doing this it affects my state and so our job is to make sure that the constitution's followed and that every vote counts and in this case i'm not sure that every vote was counted not in the right way well i think that's fair to say uh this is interesting cbs had said Really, what's going on here is the fact that you have tainted election results. Uh, that is that is the crux of the argument here. But there are some specific constitutional arguments going on in the course of this lawsuit, because a lot of people may say, what's it to Texas? If, if you see what's going on in some of these states, if Texas had secured votes and Texas's votes were counted fairly, then what does it matter? Well, in the statement from Ken Paxton, this is what he said, trust in the integrity of our election processes is sacrosanct and binds our citizenry and the states in this union together. He said Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin destroyed that trust and compromised the security and integrity of the 2020 election. The states violated statutes enacted by their duly elected legislatures, thereby violating the Constitution by ignoring both state and federal law. These states have not only tainted the integrity of their own citizens vote, but of Texas and every other state that held lawful elections, which is why you are seeing more states now jumping on board to support Texas in this quest to get heard before the Supreme Court. Now, one of the constitutional issues has to do with the violation of the electors clause in the Constitution. This is something that Attorney General Paxton talked about. Cut to. It is the responsibility of state legislatures per the Constitution to set the the rules for election of electors. And in this case, 
those were overridden in the four states we're talking about were overridden by other officials, whether they were judges or other governmental officials. And that's not the way our Constitution works. And that's the challenge we have in front of the court. Can this be overridden by uh, people who are not responsible under the Constitution for doing this? Right. So you have non-legislative changes to the defendant state's election laws facilitating the casting and counting of ballots in violation of state law. That's what it's about, that you had judges and other non-elected officials basically changing the election laws. And you can't do that under the law. Now, what about the ways in which the electors clause was actually violated in the states of Georgia and Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin? Here's what he said. Cut three. In, in almost all those cases that we have, we have states that, that allowed mail-in ballots in cases they were not supposed to. They allowed for non-signature verification, which is really important. So when you, when you request a mail-in ballot, you have to sign for that, for that application. And then they'll verify when you send your ballot in on a sleeve of the ballot, usually they'll verify that signature to ensure that those two signatures match. Well, if you just waive those requirements, you have no way to go back and verify that the person that requested the application is the person voting. That's a pretty important thing when in Pennsylvania you go from 233,000 uh, mail-in ballots four years ago to 2.5 million, and the difference in the election was only 81,000. That's a very important issue to, to ignore. Well, of course it is, which is why you have leftist media outlets saying legal experts call, call this a crazy lawsuit. This is insane. This is nuts. You know, if you have no basis for filing a lawsuit, usually they just refute it. And in this case, there's just a lot of blustering, which I'm going to get to in a moment. The second constitutional issue in this case, though, and it goes back to the case of Bush v. Gore, has to do with a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. And this is how Paxton explained that angle cut for. Well, I think that explains the wisdom of the Constitution requiring that a, a statewide body uh, of legislators make the rules instead of allowing county by county distinctions that are different where people are treated differently in different states. And I think that was part of the genius of what the founders put in place is making sure that everybody in the state was at least treated the same. In this case, in all four states, we have county by county distinctions that treated voters differently. And we therefore have unreliable results. And that's a problem. It certainly is. Something else that has gotten a lot of traction is this issue of the statistical likelihood of Biden winning in these states uh, that was included in the text of this lawsuit. This was something that Kaylee McEnany, the White House press secretary, talked about a little bit also on Fox. This is Cut 5. And what this lawsuit does, uh, it looks at those anomalies and here's what it finds. It finds that the chances of Biden coming from as far behind as he was at 3 a.m. on election night, the chances of that are one in one quadrillion. The chances of him, that, that's prevailing in one state, prevailing in all four of the states where he was so far behind, the chances of that are one in a quadrillion to the fourth power. This is all outlined right here in this lawsuit. Everything we've discussed in a source document by attorneys before the United States. Supreme Court. Uh, those are pretty large numbers. So how did the left react? As I mentioned, you've seen a lot in print about these legal experts on the left always who say, oh, this is a long shot. It might be a long shot. 
Probably not, though. I don't know how the Supreme Court is going to necessarily just blow this one off. You're talking about multiple states now getting on board involving a national election. To me, at least on the ground, it seems very unlikely that Supreme Court wouldn't at least take it. But George Conway. Oh, good old George Conway, the somewhat off the rails husband of Kellyanne Conway, who used to be working with the Trump administration, as we know, was asked on CNN for his thoughts on the lawsuit. You're going to love this. Cut six. This is the most insane thing yet. First of all, I mean, the the Supreme Court has jurisdiction to hear disputes among states, and usually it's for borders and rivers. The notion that the Supreme Court is going to have a litigation where states are attacking each other's rules for choosing electors is insane, and they are not going to do that at any point in time. And that and that lawsuit, I mean, I, I skimmed some of it. I mean, it basically, it's a motion for leave to allow them to file a complaint, which the Supreme Court has the discretion to just deny because they can decide we don't want to hear this case, bring it somewhere else. The, the, the case is just lie after lie in it. For example, they, they say, they talk about the ballot dumps in the middle of the night, and they say, oh, there's a one in 10 quadrillion chance or something like that that that, that all these votes, that these votes would have been so heavily Democratic as though, you know, they're pretending as though the Democrats and Republicans are equally mixed in mail-in versus voting in person and, and that, the, you know, the middle of the state is, diff- is not different from Philadelphia. Right. I mean, it's crazy. That's your argument? That's your argument, George Conway, Mr. Lincoln Project? That's your argument? That's hilarious. That's utterly hilarious. There's nothing to see here. There's nothing to see here. All of you go back to your homes. There's nothing to see here. Well, there is something to see here. And if you go online, you can read the entire lawsuit. And when you read through the entire lawsuit, I think you might have a different notion than George Conway does on whether or not the claims and the constitutional concerns brought by Paxton and these other states is crazy. We're going to go to a break. We're going to come back, though, an update on that important Nevada church case and the unconstitutional COVID-19 restrictions. They lost at the Supreme Court. Now they're back in court this week. We'll be back right after this on Janet Meffer Today. If you could provide God's word to a Bible-less believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's Word. Everyone wants to read the Bible, but what happens, there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will Uh, be sharing the single Bible. For only $5, believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Dan Steiner here with Freeborn Ministries, And this is my personal invitation for you to join my wife, Valerie, and I on December 13th for Celebrate Life, a live Christmas 
online benefit for unborn children. Many of you have supported and saved the lives of preborn babies through this radio session. This is an opportunity, friend, for you to see a preborn center in action, for you to see moms and babies who have chosen life, to meet some of the directors. We're going to have Matthew West to hear Christmas music from Matthew. An opportunity for you to do a watch party in your home, bring your friends together, and celebrate life that has been saved as a result of your generosity. And friends, on this broadcast, we're going to have a live ultrasound as well for you to see like many of you have supported. So please join us on December 13th, 7 p.m. Eastern Time at Preborn.com. Preborn.com on December 13th for Celebrate Life, a live Christmas online benefit for preborn babies. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Back in July, the Supreme Court declined to halt enforcement of Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak's unconstitutional COVID-19 restrictions on churches. Under the governor's orders, businesses like casinos and bars could operate at 50 percent capacity. But churches, regardless of their size or their safety standards, were barred from gathering in groups of more than 50 people. But the fight goes on, and it does so now in the wake of subsequent Supreme Court decisions that have been favorable on this issue of religious freedom, even during during the age of coronavirus. And this week, Alliance Defending Freedom, defending Calvary Chapel, Dayton Valley, asked a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel to strike down the Nevada restrictions that treat churches worse than casinos. We're going to get an update on the case now from Gary Leese, who is pastor of Calvary Chapel, Dayton Valley, along with his attorney, Ryan Tucker, who is senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom. Welcome to you both. Glad to have you with us. Thanks, Thank Anna. you, Jennifer. Yeah, thank you. Ryan, let me start with you because the news reports are indicating that this panel appeared pretty receptive to your legal arguments on behalf of Calvary Chapel. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened during this week's hearing? Sure. Well, they were very receptive. It was a three-judge panel. They asked a lot of insightful questions and uh, certainly questioned the state's counsel uh, when he talked about uh, casinos being more regulated, for example, as a rationale as to why the church was being treated less. And uh. And that that line of that line of reasoning did not sit well. Uh, fortunately, with the panel, I mean, the panel recognized that, uh, in particular, in light of the Supreme Court uh, ruling you mentioned, that uh, casinos, uh, big box retailers, uh, cannabis shops, uh, none of those places should be placed on a higher pedestal than a church. But unfortunately, that's what we're seeing in present day. Nevada, but we hope that will change soon. Yeah, I hope so, too. This is kind of interesting. I was reading a little bit about this. Nevada's, who was it, the deputy solicitor, I guess it was, was arguing, like you just mentioned, that casinos are a different category and everything. But he also said, according to what I read, that the nature of church services makes them especially vulnerable to COVID-19. That That's kind of a wild claim to say COVID hates Christians more than it hates other people. That's very weird to me. It, it really is. I mean, the virus doesn't discriminate, uh, so the government shouldn't either. I mean, it, it's this idea that somehow the virus happens to know where you're at, and obviously that's that's nonsense. And and uh, I don't think that the panel uh, received that well, um, but I do know that they, uh, you know, received the arguments that were put forward uh, by the church, and uh, I, I think that obviously we've benefited mightily from just what the Supreme Court's done in the last couple of weeks. But this fight continues. The, these, uh, these governors um, are continuing to hold the line. I, I hope that they'll, they'll see the light here. But uh, 
As of right now, uh, this COVID litigation continues. Well, right. Now, when you look at the subsequent decisions that I mentioned earlier and you just referred to, we had some, you know, a, a bad decision back in July, in my opinion, concerning Calvary Chapel. But then you've had these subsequent decisions uh, about New York and also a promising decision to have a lower federal court reexamine restrictions against California churches. How has the landscape potentially changed for victory in this particular case? Well, there's certainly been been a shift, and I think that uh, the New York uh, case in particular, uh, you know, just underscored the fact that, you know, look, if, if you can have people gather, you know, inside for extended periods of time at places that a governor deems, quote unquote, essential, then why can't those same people gather, you know, subject to uh, identical restrictions and churches or uh, other houses of worship, especially when those religious institutions have made plain that they're ready, able, and willing to follow those safety precautions. It, it doesn't make sense to treat one differently than the other, and certainly our First Amendment makes very clear that you can't. Right. And so uh, the, the, these, these judges uh, are, are, are certainly more receptive to that. I think they were falling victim to a, a prior Supreme Court ruling um, by uh, uh, another California church where it appeared that, that local officials had uh, certain deference. But uh, the, uh, the ruling just a couple of weeks ago changed that narrative quite a bit. And I, I look forward to uh, not just a victory here, but hopefully across the nation. Oh, so, so important. Let me turn to you, Gary, because I think this is so fantastic that your church has been willing to take on this legal fight. And I know many, many Christians across the country are very grateful for it. What was it about what happened to your church with these restrictions that made you decide this is a battle worth fighting? You know, Janet, it, it was a process of, like everyone else, we, we didn't know what to do when this thing first happened. So we, as, as good citizens, went along and, you know, we shut down the church and, and uh, went online. And then when things opened up uh, to, uh, to allow us to, we had drive-in services, you know, and, and that was a, a, an interesting concept as well. But then when the governor opened up the, uh, the, the casinos and he opened up the, uh, the, the other uh, uh, businesses within the state and basically declared that church was non-essential, uh, it, it created a place where, where the line was, was very clear. Uh, church is not only essential as far as we're concerned, uh, the, the whole aspect of coming back together and worshiping is the, uh, the, the foundation on which this, this country was, was founded. And, it, and it's a, a, a necessity for all believers to do so. So uh, the, the fight came to us, and, and we, just, uh, we just, by the grace of God, were able to stand with it and, and ADF with us as well. Well, praise God that you did this because this is representing the interests of a lot of Christians across the country. This is something that I saw in a video that I had watched that you had put out earlier, Gary, and this was about your concern about the health of the church. This is something else that has come up periodically. How in the world can people say the church is not essential at a time when suicides are up and depression is up and we're seeing all kinds of emotional and physical fallout from people not being able to get out and about and go to hospitals, things like this. Can you reflect a little bit on how that weighs into the legal fight? Your concern about the health, uh, the spiritual health of your congregation and congregations like yours? Absolutely, Janet. The, the the issue comes down to understanding that yes, there is a physical threat here. There's no there's no doubt. There's no denying that. But there's also an emotional, a mental, and a spiritual component of this too. We're uh, as individuals made up of different components, and and if we say that, that that one aspect is more important than the other, then what we're going to find is that the body as as a whole is going to become sick. And so we've seen people become emotionally sick. We've seen people become mentally ill, and we see that played out in the numbers you just 
just referenced, but also then there's a spiritual element of this. And when people are not being treated on all of these different aspects, uh, they're going to become unhealthy. And it's not only unhealthy individually, it's healthy, unhealthy collectively uh, for, the, uh, for, for the society as a whole. Uh, the, the church is, is, if you will, the, the glue that holds society together because it provides for the mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual uh, care and well-being of people. Yeah, well said. And Governor Sisolak, as I understand it, had increased the church's capacity to 50 percent. Then he brought it back down again. Was that due to subsequent COVID-19 cases? And how did that affect you? What are you up to right now as a congregation? We've tried to be responsive to and, and comply with uh, with the, the orders as they've come out based on, on uh, uh, wanting to be good citizens. Uh, we're still having church services. We've made numerous changes in our in our programs from adding additional services to uh, continuing to have social distancing and mask wearing and, and following all the guidelines and such. Uh, but we're still going to have church. We're, we're still going to do so even if it means that we have to, to take Uh, what would be considered, I believe, unreasonable measures to do so. Yes. Well, good for you. Ryan, going back to you, a lot of people may be listening and saying, well, wait a minute. If you had that Supreme Court decision handed down in July, how is it that you're still doing this lawsuit at the Ninth Circuit panel? But this this was due to a procedural rule, right, that you could pursue both tracks simultaneously. So would this then potentially go back to the Supreme Court again? Are you looking toward that if you don't get the right decision at the lower level? That's exactly right, Janet. Everything you just said is accurate. So in, in, in the summer, we, uh, after we had a negative ruling at the Ninth Circuit, we, we asked them for emergency injunctive relief. We said, hey, every, every single Sunday, every single Wednesday service, where we're denied the opportunity really to worship, uh, as the First Amendment provides, um, that's a constitutional violation. So we asked the court for immediate relief. It was denied at the Ninth Circuit, and so we immediately took that request to the U- U.S. Supreme Court. It was denied at that at that point in time, 5-4, but there were 20-plus pages of dissenting opinions uh, that are a, a great read. I would encourage your listeners to go online and, and read those. Um, but what it did was it sent us back down to the Ninth Circuit, where, again, as you mentioned, this week we argued that case. And uh, depending on the way the, uh, the ruling rolls out, we have an opportunity uh, potentially to be back at the U.S. Supreme Court so they can – uh, make a final determination. Uh, we have currently pending what's called a cert petition before judgment, which basically means uh, that's a request for the United States Supreme Court to take our case uh, if it so desires. And so we have that already filed at the U.S. Supreme Court. So we're patiently waiting to see what the Ninth Circuit uh, does right now so we can evaluate whether uh, that potential exists. Well, good. Something else that, that this uh, deputy solicitor for Nevada had mentioned, and I wanted to ask you about this, is I understand he tried to argue that Nevada is different than New York and California because the religious gathering restrictions in those states were stricter. Does that matter at all? Did that matter at all to the panel? No, and no, it didn't. And, and I also don't think that's accurate. Um, the, the numerical restrictions in, in New York, uh, the 10, the 25, depending on which tier you were in, those same uh, numerical restrictions existed in Nevada uh, before even our lawsuit was filed. At the time our lawsuit was filed, the church was, of course, limited to 50 people. Casinos were opening up at 50 percent capacity. But before that, they, they had even more uh, heinous restrictions than that. So I, I see this as being an even worse situation than what we see in, in New York and Certainly, the, our, our friends in California have been uh, on the receiving end of some oral restrictions there as well. Uh, but all of these collectively 
are all, um, you know, violations of our first freedom. And uh, we look forward to uh, correcting that. Well, that's great. Very briefly, Gary, I wanted to go back to you and just ask how we can be praying for you and your church in your case right now. You know, Janet, the thing to be doing right now is all Christians uh, within the country need to be praying that uh, uh, the, the court of man will recognize the authority of God. Amen. And, and that we would return to recognizing that God is the sovereign over this nation and over the entire world. And as such, uh, and, and as his people, if we expect his blessings and if we expect uh, for, for things to be prosperous for us, then we need to recognize the ultimate authority, which is which is Jesus Christ. Amen. So well said. Pastor Gary Least and Attorney Ryan Tucker from Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you both for being with us, and we'll be in prayer for you for sure. Thanks again. Thank you so much. God bless. We'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We all remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, what does this mean for America? Because we are a nation born from pilgrims who are seeking religious liberty in a new world, but we've also been an incredibly prosperous nation, and those two realities have always been in tension. Americans have struggled to reconcile money and power with our dual aspirations to virtue. What are we to make of it? We're going to talk about it today with award-winning writer Lance Morrow. He is a Wall Street Journal columnist. He was an essayist at Time for many years and is also the Henry Grunwald Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington. We're going to talk today about how the dynamics of money have shaped the nation that America has become. His book is called God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money. And Lance, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm delighted to be there. Thank you. You say that America began with money. How is that the case? Well, the uh, my my point is the um, the initial impulse for a great deal of the, um, the the exploration and the settlement and so on was money. Even though religion was always, uh, particularly in New England, mixed up with that. So. Uh, uh, originally, of course, was the El Dorado myth and the uh, the search for El Dorado, the search for uh, um, a route to uh, to China, to trade route to China, and also the uh, the early trade, uh, the uh, trade for beavers and all of that. Um, but the, as you say, religion and and uh, and money have always been mixed together, God and Mammon, and there's been been this. Uh, Tension between the two, but in a funny way, they've they've worked in partnership and uh, and they've they've managed to achieve a good deal, uh, even though there, there is that sort of biblical op- opposition. 
uh, between the two. Yes, that's right. So when you're talking about this binary of God and mammon, which you just alluded to, again, I'd mentioned the pilgrims and certainly religious freedom was paramount to them when they came here. But how do you yeah. how do you view this overarching American partnership of God and mammon? I mean, how has this kind of played out through history, generally speaking? Well, I, I examine it in the some sort of representative American lives, uh, trying to see the ways in which it is played out through um, particular biographies. It's a very complicated business. Uh, it's never all one thing or, or all the other. Uh, the question that underlies uh, the, uh, the the whole drama is, uh, is money the root of all evil, as we are told, or is it the source of a great deal of good? And uh, uh, the, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the the struggle to justify American prosperity and to to um, make it virtuous, uh, to somehow justify it in moral terms and justify it in the sight of God, has been a very interesting part of the of the American story from the very beginning. And uh, it, it's uh, I, what, one of the things that I concentrate on in this book is what I call the emotions of money. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in uh, in this book not so much in the technical aspects of uh, economic theory and so on as as in the cultural and psychological and emotional dimensions of money as it as, as it has played itself out through. American history, and one can see it in uh, in various American stories. One one can see it, especially in the subject of, uh, of race and slavery in the slave trade, yes. uh, which is a very interesting drama, uh, among other things, about money. It has to do with, I mean, the slave trade obviously has, 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 has this economic as well as other uh, dimensions to it. Yeah, well, that's right. You describe actually money and race as being our two permanent moral dilemmas. I mean, how does this tie together? Because certainly slavery, there was a lot of money. uh, There was a money component, certainly to slavery, obviously. What do... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. I was just going to say, when you look back on it now, in an era where we're hearing a lot about race, and you discussed that too in the era of the pandemic and the BLM protests and so forth, yeah. why does that matter? Why should Americans be concerned about that angle? Well, because the slave trade originated in uh, in an economic in economic motives. Um, I I have a, a fairly long section of the book devoted to the Brown Brothers of Providence, Rhode Island, that is, John Brown and Moses Brown. And uh, they uh, are of the Brown family that founded Providence and for whom Brown University is named. They They were very important figures in the founding of the United States. Uh... But the interesting thing about John and Moses is that John was a very active and fairly unapologetic slave trader, or at least a financier. He he financed slave ships to go to the coast of Africa and bring slaves over. And at the same time, his brother Moses uh, became, after an initial brush with the slave trade, became a, a very ardent and important 
abolitionist, and he worked for many, many years for the abolition of slavery and even for the enactment of a bill, uh, a legislation, uh, that would directly affect his brother's uh, trade and business. But the, the point of the slave trade, the origins of the slave trade, is, is that, that it, it had such uh, powerful roots in economics and, and what the people in some of these places, including Newport, Rhode Island, and Providence, came to regard as economic necessity. <laughs> they, they came to think that the slave trade uh, was really a, a vital part of their business yep. model and that they, they couldn't dispense with it. John's, John Brown said, uh, you know, I would, I would stop doing it if I thought that it was morally wrong, but I don't really. And, <laughs> and in any case, it is a very, very important uh, part of our business operations right. and uh, so that this is this is coming in in the very origins of the country and it's been it's built into uh, so much of, of the uh, of those origins and that's part of the reverberation that we feel now it's it's this tremendous unresolved uh, question. Yes. Well, it is. And yet people will point out rightly that we fought a civil war to end slavery. And so Pretty that was, a, yeah, I mean, that was a long time ago. We had the Civil Rights yeah. Act of 1964. Right. So so why the discussion of race as it pertains to, you know, you think of the 1619 Project, for example, and yeah. all of the narrative that's being disseminated today about race. And yet there was a very strong economic component that I would argue, uh, certainly there was a racial component involved for sure, but the economic component is not discussed as much as perhaps it ought to be. Well, I, I think that's true, and, and the, uh, the 1619 project um, tends to minimize um, the fact that slavery was, uh, has always been a feature of human behavior and economics and so on from the beginning of time in almost every part of the world and uh, in in almost every age, including today. Yeah. And uh, so what you said a moment ago is absolutely true, that, that you cannot say, you cannot pretend that the condition in which the United States lives today uh, in the year 2020 is um, identical to, uh, morally speaking, to... Uh, the U.S. of 1619 or 1776 or 1860 or 1900. Uh, in other words, there has been enormous change in the country, and and in many ways, it is a story of um, uh, of a society, a country, a, a place moving to by fits and starts and with with many uh, setbacks and so on but moving to change and to improve and to correct yeah absolutely hang on just a moment lance morrow with us we'll be back discussing his book god and mammon you're listening to janet meffer today
This is the story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. It's a fact. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her baby. I know God won't want me to just throw away my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. One ultrasound costs just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. Would you please consider helping us to support Preborn and the cause for life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible, or there's a banner to click at Janet Mefford. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward health other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Thanks for being with us. And it's great to have with us Lance Morrow, Wall Street Journal columnist and author of God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money. We have been discussing some of the aspects of the emotions of money. And and before we went to the break, Lance, we were discussing this issue of slavery and the economic angle on slavery and how our country, though, as you've mentioned, has been changing over the years. So how do you put the modern day take on the race? racial issues that America is now facing, and especially in light of some of these protests during the pandemic. How do you put that in perspective or compare it to what went on during the 1800s, especially during the slavery period and and era? Well, if one looks at the state of things in, as I say, in 1619 or or 1850 or 1860 or, or any other year earlier and compares it to the state of America today, uh, of course, there, there is in, the progress has been absolutely stupendous. There's been uh, Barack Obama for eight years and so on and so on. And one can go on and on about about the immensely changed uh, situation in regard to race. Uh, One can discuss the condition of America in the year 2020 as a so-called racist society that is um, dominated by white supremacy, so-called, and white nationalism, so-called, and may prove, I believe, that that, um, this, this is a very... In, in, in many ways, a very unrealistic and, and inaccurate portrayal of the country. And one of the reasons 
I like I wrote the book was to try and relate the past to the present and to go back into the history and to to discuss what things were like and the the uh, sense of change and evolution from earlier to now. Yes. So uh, the discussion today, in my view, is very very uh, fouled up, and and there's there's many many terms that need to be. Uh, redefined and to, to to be discussed seriously, I I think the the state of, of debate in this country is um, in in a state of uh, is is absolutely uh, deplorable and to use that word. <laughs> yes. And, uh, uh, and and the there is nothing but uh, there there's not a real serious discussion going on. It is a sort of yelling back and forth. And uh, and particularly about race, um, so it's uh, uh, my my book is my effort, and I in the book I do talk a lot about the year 2020 as well as about American history. But I think that Americans somehow or other eventually, if they if this if things ever calm down, are going to have to start thinking more seriously the, the, about the and, and talking more seriously to one another about the realities and uh, and having a real debate. I, I think the 1619 project was uh, of the New York Times was and, and actually the authors of it have now sort of admitted it that it's that it's a historical and that it that it basically uh, was meant to be a sort of symbolic thing and, and right. a kind of trope or meme rather than rather than a seriously accurate historical document. But I think it's done a lot of damage, and, and I think that it is, uh, and it is now institutionalized in, in the American uh, education system. It's being taught in school systems all over the country, oh, yeah. and I think I think gives a, a false idea. Of, uh, of not only of the realities of the slave trade, but of the comparative of the state of, of the moral state. How do you judge this country, and how do you judge its condition in regard to race? Yeah. And uh, so, I'm very, I'm very worried about the the state of the discussion now. Yeah, I am too. You know, another portion of your book, and it's so good, people need to get a hold of it and read it for themselves because your essays are just brilliant. But the section where you were talking about the Great Depression really grabbed me in particular because you were talking about, you know, all of us can tell stories. I remember my grandparents going through the Great Depression and the basement when we cleaned it out, there were eight I think it was eight buckets of rusty nails because they believed you should never throw anything out because you might not be able to get it. But it's kind of funny to compare in a way to the economic fallout, which is not really comparable necessarily at this juncture to the Great Depression. But now you've got hoarding toilet paper. You know, (laughs) how do you kind of how do you kind of put this together and say the fear, you know, the fear of not having the fear of wanting to hoard versus this idea that God will take care of us. Uh, which you know is inherent in in what we understand about scripture and what it says. Well, I mean, you talk about the emotions, or I talk about the emotions of money, and that that, um, that my recurring theme of the depression of the Great Depression, uh, as is 
trauma, there's real trauma uh, in the, the emotional trauma in the in the history of of Americans' relationship with money. And the, the, your story about the nails is is uh, so perfect because uh, with my parents and grandparents, they would not dream of of um, of throwing things away, or do, they would they, they it, was, it was a mentality. They had they had been shaken absolutely to the bone. The the depression was such a profoundly uh, jarring and and un-American event, really, to yeah. the to the people who, who who went through it because it wasn't supposed to happen. The the system wasn't supposed to collapse like that. Right. And uh, I, so I write about my own parents and my grandparents and. Uh, and, and the the uh, the terrible trauma that occurred, and I'm I'm God knows what uh, how we're going to come out of the COVID thing, and whether how badly and traumatized and traumatized people are going to be by uh, this economic situation, let alone the medical. But um, but the the Great Depression was, I think, was was a thing that deeply marked the country and deeply marked the psyche of the country. Yes. And, uh, and of course, the generation that came after, the baby boomers, you know, who, came, who came, grew up in the 50s and then came of age in the Vietnam generation, and that was a whole different America. It was a different idea of America. True. It was a, and, and a different idea of the virtue or the villainy of the country yeah. was it a virtue art this is the this is the question that's really at the core of this is is this a good country or is this a bad country hmm. is this is this fundamentally a a wicked enterprise and uh the uh, i believe that so much of what is going on today in the in the um, divisions of the country originated in the Vietnam era, and 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 in the divisions of that generation, that huge baby boom generation, and the inclination to say this is a bad country, it is racist, it is sexist, it is over in Vietnam killing babies and bombing innocent little peasants and and so on, um, and so much of that from the youth of the baby boom now comes back to haunt us in the old age of the baby boomers. Yes. And, uh, and, and so that, I think that's what a lot of what we're seeing now. Only it's gone into hyperdrive. It's gone, some of the, um, some of the rhetoric of, on the left uh, is, is a wild acceleration of the 60s uh, rhetoric oh, uh, in, yes. in regard to the evil, the evil of country. Oh, yeah. That, and that's an important distinction because that's an observation I've heard many people make. Well, the, the the generation, the greatest generation that had to go through the Great Depression, as you said, you know, they, they became very tough. And then heading into World War II, that, that, that there's a lot of tie there. Are we as virtuous? I think many people would argue uh, to the contrary of what a lot of the left is saying about the evils of America when it comes to personal virtue. I don't think we're on a better trajectory than they were during the Great Depression, and that does make a difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, it's it's hard to figure out this country now. I think it's in such a state of um, 
I mean, it's hard to generalize, and, and it's hard to, perhaps it always is, but it seems to me, I've, I, I, you know, I'm, I've been around for a long time, and it, it seems to me um, a very perplexing situation. You're right and, about that. Uh, I think it's going to take us a long time to figure this out. Absolutely. Well, check it out. It's God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money by Lance Morrow, and just wonderful to have you with us, Lance. Thank you so much for being here. I'm delighted to talk to you. Thank you. God bless you and take care. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. Always a pleasure to have you along for our broadcast. Hope you'll join us again. God bless you. We'll see you next time.